0: All right, Revelation 19, uh, verses 11 to the end of the chapter, which is verse 21. John now sees, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, And he had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them as with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress, Of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses. And of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake, of fire burning with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. So last time, which was at the beginning of July, July 3rd, uh, we considered the previous section of uh, chapter 19, verses 1 through 10, which shows us not only a contrast between the harlot that we saw in chapter 17 and the bride that we saw briefly in chapter 19, it also shows us this glorious truth of the marriage supper of the Lamb as, as the bride, bridegroom and his bride celebrate the consummation of their wedding at this great feast in heaven at the end of the age. This marriage supper, as I've been arguing, is the culmination of redemptive history. It all comes to this point as the bridegroom Jesus, the Lamb, consummates the wedding with His bride, the church. Again, consider that great psalm, Psalm 23. Everyone knows it's a very beloved psalm. And in verse 5 of Psalm 23, we read the psalmist David say, You prepare a table before me, in the presence of my enemies. And that's what we see in the marriage supper of the Lamb as the Lord now prepares a table before His enemies for the bride, the church, and this lavish banquet while our enemies are sort of like on the outside looking in at the church. And then the psalm concludes with, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So this great feast is prepared. After the psalmist comes out of the valley of the shadow of death, he sees that the Lord prepares for him a banquet. The Lord anoints his head with oil. And then the psalmist in the end says, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That is our great hope. That is our great expectation. To dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Just want to look. This is a theme you see throughout the Psalms. You could follow with me if you'd like. Uh, Psalm twenty-seven, verse four. Psalm twenty-seven, verse four. This is also a Psalm of David. Of course, that the the Psalm, the Psalter is broken down into five books, and Book one contains, I think it's. Almost all of them are attributed to David. There might be a few that are unattributed. Uh, I don't know if there are any in the first book. I don't recall that if there are any in the first book that are attributed to someone other than David. But here in Psalm 27, I'm just going to start at verse 1, where the, David says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? I just love that. The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? It always reminds me of Romans 8. Right? If God is for us, who shall be against us? Right? If, if the Lord is the light of my salvation, who is there on earth that I, could, that I should fear? What should I be afraid of if the Lord is on my side? Right? If, the, if the God of heaven and earth, if the God who spoke the creation into existence is on my side, if He is my light and my salvation, there should be nothing that we would fear He is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked came against me to eat up my flesh, my enemies and my foes, they stumbled and fell. Why? Because the Lord is my light and my salvation. Though an army may encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Why? Because the Lord is my light and my salvation. Though war may rise against me, in this I will be confident. One thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. That is our great hope. That's what David here hopes for. In the midst of his trials and tribulations, in the midst of his of his suffering at the hands of of unjust men, he trusted in the Lord, who is his light and his salvation. And his hope was that he would uh, see the Lord. That he would dwell in his house. That he would inquire in his temple. That he would be able to learn from the Lord for all of the days of his life. This is our great hope and expectation. Flip over now to Psalm 65. I mean, there's many more I could turn to. I just picked a few that were particularly poignant. Psalm 65. This also a song of David, a psalm of David. In Psalm 65, he says, Praise is awaiting you, O God, in Zion. And to you the vow shall be performed, O you who hear prayer. To you all flesh will come, iniquities shall prevail against me. As for our transgressions, you will provide atonement for them. And here we go, verse 4. Blessed is the man you choose in cause to approach you, that he may dwell in your courts, we shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, of your holy temple. Now there's a sense in which you could say that David is speaking of the earthly temple, but there's also a sense in which you could say that David is speaking of the eschatological temple, the temple of God, the one that will come when Jesus returns, and there will be no temple because Jesus himself is the temple and he will dwell amongst his people and here the psalmist is saying that I want to dwell in your courts, and we shall be satisfied. Not just like, man, eh, I'm satisfied. No, I mean like satisfied that you are dwelling in the temple of the Lord. One more psalm. If you will indulge me. Psalm 84. There's a couple of verses I want to highlight, but I like this psalm so much I'm going to read the whole thing. Psalm 84. This is a psalm of the sons of Korah. I like to call the sons of Korah sort of like an ancient Israelite praise and worship band. (laughs) Uh, I, I I jest, but um, these would have been uh, musicians in in David's court more than likely. Psalm eighty four, how lovely is your tabernacle? There's a song right. I mean there's there's a popular Christian song. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord God Almighty? You know, and they use the uh, they use one of these verses as the chorus, the hook for the song. But again. This is truth, right? I mean, the dwelling place of the Lord is lovely. How lovely is your tabernacle, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Even the sparrow has found a home, and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young. Even your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, verse 4, they will, be, they will still be praising you. Blessed is the man whose strength is in you, whose heart is set on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a spring. The rains also cover it with pools, so the, the deserts become fertile land. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer, give ear, O God of Jacob." O God, behold our shield and look upon the face of your anointed. Verse 10. This is the hook for that song, too, if you know the song. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. I always get the joke from people occasionally who know this psalm, if I'm out there opening the doors for people, they're like, ah, you're a doorman in the house of the Lord. It's like, well... (laughs) Better to be a doorman in the house of the Lord than to be a master in the tents of wickedness. Um, Verse 11, For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the man who trusts in you. So in these psalms that I've read, you see this hope and expectation of the psalmist to dwell in the place of the Lord, to be in his tabernacle, Better is one day in your courts than thousands anywhere else. That is our hope and our expectation. That's what Revelation is trying to get at here. So like all the other cycles that we've seen in Revelation so far, this one that we saw last time in verses 1-10 through is the fifth of the seven cycles. And it ends with the church, the bride of the Lamb, in the house of the Lord, beholding the beauty of the Lord in his tabernacle. So that brings me now to the next thing I want to um, talk about here. Just a few words. Now, I've, I've mentioned this before, so I, I kind of repeat myself, not just to fill space or time, but, you know, repetition is how we all learn, right? I've talked a lot about these cycles in the book of Revelation, these cycles, so if like me, you're taught in a dispensational uh, framework of looking at revelation, um, they they view these cycles when you hear that when you hear this this if, in that mindset, when you hear these cycles of repetition and revelation, that might sound like a bit of an interpretive sleight of hand it's on like, well you're kind of playing fast and loose with the words of scripture because the majority report in American Uh, evangelical Christians is when it comes to eschatology, when it comes to the last things, the majority of report is dispensationalism. In particular, a pre-tribulational rapture and a pre-millennial return of Christ. Now, I'm going to hold off on the millennium until next time because next time we'll be in chapter 20, which talks about the millennium. But dispensationalism holds to what they call a literal hermeneutic. That's just a fancy word for interpretation. They hold to a literal school of interpretation, which means that as much as possible, they try to interpret the Bible literally, as literally as possible. Now, you might ask, well, what's wrong with that? Well, there's nothing wrong with that. We should endeavor to interpret the Bible literally. Problem is, not only does this literal interpretation hermeneutic of the dispensationalists lead them to some interesting theological conclusions, in my opinion. They also seem to ditch it when it seems to contradict with their theology. And we'll discuss that a little bit next time, too. But the dispensationalists will look at Revelation 4 through 20, right? They see the, you know, the beginning chapters 1 through 3 as That's now, right? John writes to the churches now. And then they see 4 through 20 as way in the future. Like way in the future. Like even future from us. That's something that's way in the future, not just to John's audience, but to us as well. But they also look at Revelation uh, chapters 4 through 20 as sequential, as one event following the next event, following the next event, following the next event. So that means that they see the seals flow into the trumpets, flow into the bowls. So they see all of that as one just sequential timeline of events occurring one after the other. They don't see these chapters as depicting the church age. That's what I've been calling it. I know that there might be some quibbles with that terminology, but the church age, in other words, the period of time from Christ's life, death, resurrection, and ascension to his return, this entire period I'm calling the church age, they see all of this, what's happening in Revelation 4 through 20, happening in some future seven year period that they call the great tribulation. Now, the view I've been espousing here is to look at these visions in chapters 4 through 20 in seven cycles, seven sort of viewpoints, seven camera angles, if you will, of the same period of time looked at it from different perspectives. Okay? Same period of time looked at it from different perspectives. Part of this argument is based on the apocalyptic nature of John's revelation here. It's an apocalypse. Apocalypse uses highly symbolic language. It uses visionary language and symbols typically represent something. The symbols themselves are not necessarily meant to be taken in a literal fashion. They are actual visions that he sees that represents real things in the world. Also, if you Think about it too, as we've been progressing through this, each cycle that we've looked at thus far seems to end with final judgment. So the first time we see this is at the end of the seals in chapter 6. In chapter 6, verses 12 through 17, this, the sixth seal is opened. And we see, I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, of hair, and the moon became like blood. Now that's, that's highly apocalyptic language that speaks of judgment. Okay, We saw that at, at, at the um, crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. There was an earthquake, the sun darkened for a period of time, and the dead rose. It was, it was a day of the Lord judgment being poured out on Jesus for our sins. And the stars of heaven fell to the earth, as a fig tree drops its late, uh, late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll. That sounds like Second Peter, when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. So great, cataclysmic, and uh, you know, I mean, topographical altering um, language here. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man, hid themselves in the caves. So they don't repent. <laughs> right? Jesus is coming. They don't repent. What do they do? They shake their fists at God and they hide. Like that's, that, like that's a good plan, to hide from God. How did that work for Adam? Didn't work very well. Okay. So they hide. They hid themselves. And said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of his wrath has come, who is able to stand. So that's the end of the first cycle, and it seems to end with, well, it's technically it's not the end of the first cycle, because the seventh seal, which you see at chapter 8, it, it's, it's cracked open, and you just see hear silence in heaven for 30 minutes. Uh, but the silence is you know, effectively meaning judgment is done. Then you see again at the end of the second cycle of the trumpets in chapter 11 verses 15 through 19 then the seventh angel sounded and there were loud voices in heaven saying the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our lord and of his son uh, of Christ of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever and the 24 elders who sat before god on their thrones fell on their faces and worshiped god saying We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come, because you have taken your great power and reigned. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come, and the time of the dead, that they should be judged, and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. Then the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple, And there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, and an earthquake, and great hail. Again, that that cataclysmic language as the second cycle ends. Then flip over to Revelation 14, the end of the third cycle, in verses 14 through 20. Now, this is not a cycle in which you see like seven seals or seven trumpets. This is the one where you get the vision of the woman, the child, the dragon, and the, and the, um, the witnesses, and so on and so forth, uh, the beast, and the, the false prophet. But at the end of chapter 14, which is the end of this cycle, starting in verse 14 of chapter 14, "...then I looked, and behold, a white cloud. And on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, Jesus, having on his head a golden crown, and on, in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, "'Thrust your sickle and reap, "'for the time has come for you to reap, "'for the harvest of the earth is ripe.' "'So he sat on the cloud "'and thrust his sickle in the earth, "'and the earth was reaped. "'Then another angel came out of the temple, "'which is in heaven, "'he also having a sharp sickle. "'And another angel came out from the altar "'who had power over fire, "'and he cried with a loud cry to him "'who had the sharp sickle, saying, "'Thrust in your sharp sickle "'and gather the clusters of the vine.' of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside the city and blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs. Again, another vision of final judgment as you get this great harvest. Jesus talked about this in his parables. How there's a harvest at the end of the earth where the wheat will be gathered up into the barn and the the chaff will be burned in the fire. Here you get the wheat gathered and the grapes are trampled in this great wine press. And again, for the 1, 2, 3, 4th cycle, chapter 16, verses 17 through 21. You're like, please don't talk about Armageddon again. (laughs) Just kidding. Verses... But we we do have Armageddon in this as well. But chapter 16, verse 17. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl, the seventh bowl, into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne, saying, It is done! And there were noises and thunderings and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake, such a mighty and great earthquake, as, as, as had not occurred since men were on the earth. Now the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell And great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Then every island fled away and the mountains were not found. Again, that same idea from what we saw earlier in chapter 6 about the sky being rolled up and the mountains being moved. And great hail from heaven. Again, this hail, earthquakes, the earth being rolled up. Great hailstone from heaven fell upon men. Each hailstone about the weight of a talent Men blaspheme God. Again, no repentance. No sense of their shame for their sin. They just are angry that God is judging them. Men blaspheme God because of the plague of the hail, since the plague was exceedingly great. So that's the the fourth cycle. Again, ending in final judgment. And then finally, the fifth cycle, which we're in, but we see this judgment in Revelation 17, Verses 7 through 14. But the angel said to me, Why did you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. The beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. There are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue for a short time. The beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth, and is of the seven and is going to perdition. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings, which have received no kingdom as yet, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. These are of one mind, and they will give their power and authority to the beast. These will make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them, for he is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. Sound familiar? We just read that in chapter 19. And those who are with him are called chosen and faithful. Now, of course, the the cycle continues because now it shows us up close the judgment on Babylon and then the marriage supper of the Lamb. But, again, I I believe that this this idea of understanding Revelation as a series of cycles that show the same period of time from different perspectives, and as you see as we're getting closer and closer and closer to the end, the focus of these visions focuses more and more and more on the end. Okay? So it's, it's... In a sense, it's like a progressive revelation in that sense, but it's still showing the same period of time from different angles. I think this makes the most sense not only of the text for our purposes, but also for John's original readers. If you remember way, way back at the beginning, one of the things I said is whatever interpretation we come with from Revelation, if it doesn't at least have some way of making sense to the original audience that received it, It's probably not a correct interpretation. I'm not going to say that categorically, but the idea being is whatever it means, it has to mean something for that generation that received it. And my argument is that it means something for them as well as for every generation that reads it. If you take the dispensational view, it doesn't really mean much to that early generation. It really means a heck of a lot for the generation at the very end when those things start to happen. Until then, we're just sort of like, okay, it could be today. It could be a thousand years from now. Who knows? That's the point. So just again, this idea of cycles. Now as we come to this text this uh, this evening, I almost said this morning, uh, we are now, I believe, in the sixth cycle. You can debate me on this. I think the second half of 19 is its own cycle. Uh, and it just focuses almost entirely on the return of Christ. And it gives, whereas these other cycles that show the final judgment, they sometimes hint at the return of Christ. They don't really state it explicitly. But as we're getting closer and closer to the end, now you're getting this sort of, okay, let's zoom in now at the return of Christ. This cycle is really all about the return of Christ. So not only is it the shortest of the seven cycles, it is also the one that so far gives us the most detailed information of the return of our glorious Messiah, King. And even though it follows on the heels of the first half that we looked at two weeks ago in the marriage supper of the Lamb, I don't believe it is a continuation of that vision, but is a new vision in its own right. Now, I say that, I don't say that with 100% absolute certainty. Okay? One thing we have to understand, and I'll Explain this even more next time when we talk about the millennium. Is there are many interpretations or interpretive schools of Revelation, and it's been that way ever since Revelation has been studied. Okay, so if this was something that you could just say, "Yeah, that's the interpretation; and it's settled and it's good," then you wouldn't have the perpetuation of these other interpretations. Their their staying power, their lasting power. Um, so. I approach this with a little bit of humility, recognizing that I know not everyone agrees with me, and that's okay. Um, This is not a central to our faith and practice that you agree with my interpretation. Um, We do have to agree on, as Christians, that Christ will return. That is an absolute, and every one of these views that looks at this differently agrees with that. They agree that Christ will return. That, 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 that it's not all fulfilled sometime in the past, that there is still a glorious return of Christ at the end of the age. So we all agree on that. It's just how do we get there? That's, that's the question. Um, so again, I approach this with humility. But again, I believe that this is another cycle that is not a continuation after the marriage supper, but a new vision in its own right, And again, like all the cycles before, it it contains the return of Christ and final judgment. In fact, that's the entirety of this vision. And also, as with previous visions, we will see sort of a gradual shift of focus on final judgment and the return of Christ as we get closer to the end. So buckle up as we now see the return of the king. So here we have the king's return in verses 11 through 16. Just two points. The passage opens, like many in Revelation do, with the opening of heaven. So John sees in verse 11, heaven opens. And out of heaven comes a rider on a white horse. And this rider, he who sat on him, was called faithful and true and in righteousness. He judges and makes war. So again, John sees heaven. Heaven, of course, in Revelation, is the place where God is. Okay, The the, the actual temple is in heaven. Oftentimes you see heaven open and you'll see the temple open. Or the tabernacle appears. Heaven is where God is. And in Revelation, heaven is also where the saints are. At least depicted in heaven. They're not physically in heaven, but spiritually we're in heaven. It always talks about those who dwell on the earth are the unbelievers. Those who are... In heaven with God are the believers. But heaven opens up, and a rider on a white horse emerges. Now, if you've been with us through most of the series in Revelation, we've seen a rider on a white horse before in chapter 6. In Revelation 6, verse 2, with the breaking of the first seal, John sees a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. (coughs) Now, (coughs) there are many interpretations of that as well. Now, some believe that that rider on the white horse is Christ, riding out with the gospel and conquering with the truth of the gospel. If you're from a dispensational point of view, that rider on the white horse is the Antichrist, and he comes conquering without actually making war. You notice he doesn't have an arrow in the bow and and he just comes and he kind of conquers by his charisma, if you will. When we went through it, we argued that it was sort of the spirit of conquest moving forward. We looked at some passages in Zechariah and other uh, passages in the Old Testament. But there is no mistaking here That this rider on this white horse in chapter 19 is Jesus, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And the rider here is called faithful and true. That is part of the clue that tells you this is Jesus. Because no other person would ever be called faithful and true other than Jesus. In Revelation 3.14, Jesus is called the Amen, the so let it be, the faithful and true Witness, the one who speaks the truth, only the truth, and how does it go? The truth, only the truth and nothing but the truth. I couldn't think of the last one. Okay. He speaks the truth, only the truth and nothing but the truth. Jesus is the one, as we've been seeing throughout John's gospel. He's the one sent by the Father to make the Father known. John 1:18, the Son. The eternal Word is in the bosom of the Father, and He comes to make the Father known, to explain the Father. The Word literally is to exegete the Father, and that that word means to explain. Uh, you know, that's that's my job is to exegete the text. I I draw out of the text what the text says and explain it. I make it known. Well, Jesus is the faithful and true exegete, and he, His. the the subject of his explanation is God the Father himself, which is why he could say to Philip, when Philip says, show us the Father, and he says to Philip, have you been with me so long that you do not know that if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Jesus perfectly explains God the Father. And this faithful and true witness is coming on his white horse, as John sees here, to judge and to make War and this he does in righteousness, in perfect justice. This is it, right? This is the moment that the church has been waiting for. This is what we pray for each week when we pray the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come. This is what we are waiting for Jesus to come as the conquering king. No longer is he Jesus meek and mild. No longer is he the suffering servant. No longer is he the the babe in swaddling clothes. He is now the conquering king. He is coming in his full glory. Think about it when Jesus is on the mount of transfiguration, right? He appears as in his humble form, and then he goes up on the mount and he brings Peter, James, and John with him. And in a sense it's sort of like he just gives them a little peek behind the curtain. Sort of like in The Wizard of Oz, you know, you get a little peek behind the curtain to see the wizard, but instead of seeing some dude you know, manipulating levers, you see the glorious Son of God as He shines forth in His full glory. And it's so glorious that it leaves the apostles dumbfounded. They don't know what to do. They just kind of stammer. It's like, shall we build tabernacles for you and Moses and Elijah? And let's just stay on this mountaintop forever. So that little glimpse is now what we see coming on this white horse. Now if you are ever tempted. And I, I don't blame anyone for this, right? You know, you look at the world around you and you think, man, can it get any worse? And then you look at the news the next day, it's like, yep, it's gotten worse. <laughs> and then you're like, okay, it can't get worse than this. And like, nope, it's gotten worse. You know, you know things that we thought were pretty basic, right? Like biology. Men and women are different. <laughs> men don't have babies. Nope, nope, nope. The world wants to tell you men can have babies. What kind of world are we living in? So you might be, I wouldn't blame anyone if you're tempted to think, when is this going to end? Is God going to ignore the sins of the wicked forever? If you're ever tempted to think that, that the wicked are getting away with murder, think that no more, as his vision makes evident. Christ is coming. And he is coming to make all wrongs right. He is coming to bring real justice. Not fake justice, not social justice, not economic justice, or racial justice, or climate justice, or or gender justice. Anytime you modify justice, you don't get justice, you just get the thing you're modifying it with. Here he brings true justice, real justice, to judge and make war with his and our enemies. So now John goes on to describe this rider on the white horse in verses 12 and 13. John sees his eyes were like a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns. You get that song, right? Crown him with many crowns, the lamb upon his throne. He He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the Word of God. Now again... That description of Jesus with the eyes of the flames of fire is a description we saw earlier in Revelation chapter 1. And when Jesus gets that vision of the exalted Christ early on, when he's on the Isle of Patmos, he gets this vision of the exalted Christ, and one of the descriptions is, he got, that, he, is that he has eyes that were like a flame of fire. In other words, these eyes that penetrate, that see to the truth of the matter. These eyes of justice, these eyes of holiness and purity that come out and examine everything. And then we see him here also, not just with a crown, like the rider on the white horse in chapter 6, who had a crown. He has how many crowns? Many crowns. The Greek word is myriad. It means an untold number. (laughs) Thousands upon thousands of crowns on his head. That's why he's the king of kings. He's the king of all the kings. He takes their crowns and they become his crowns. And this is the contrast with the beast and the dragon that we see in Revelations uh, chapters 12 and 13. right? The dragon is described as having 10 heads with, uh, with or, sorry, seven heads, 10 horns and seven crowns. And then the beast also has seven heads, 10 horns and a crown on each of his horns. So they have a lot of crowns. But Jesus has more crowns. Okay? He's got many more crowns than the dragon and the beast. Christ our King also has a name that no one knows. Well, Pastor, what's that name? No one knows. <laughs> Can you tell us what the name is? No, I can't tell you what the name is. Why? Because no one knows the name. <laughs> No one knows the name. What does that mean? Well, it means that there are going to be things about Jesus we will never, ever fully exhaust. He is infinite in all of His glory. And we will never, in all of eternity, exhaust the infiniteness of Jesus Christ. There are going to be things that we will never know about Jesus. Are you okay with that? I'm okay with that. (laughs) There are things about Him that we will never know. And we see that He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And I've seen various descriptions on this too. Some think that it's his redemptive blood. No. This is the blood of a victor who's gone out to war and who has conquered his enemies and he is splattered. Sounds gross, but he is splattered in the blood of his enemies. Jesus is a conquering king. When he comes the second time, again, he's not coming to make peace. Okay, He's not coming meek and mild anymore. He is coming as a conquering Messiah, king, a warrior, a hero, and he's going to defeat our enemies. We get this imagery also from Isaiah 63, verses 2 and 3, with where the warrior king is, has the blood splattered on his robe. This rider, now on the white horse, is called the Word of God. That's a term that John uses in his gospel, of course, that he is The Logos. The Logos of God. Jesus is the perfect revelation of God, the creative agent of the world, and the one in whom was life itself. Now a king going to war needs to have a retinue, right? He's not a king unless he has an army behind him. So that's what we see in verse 14. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. So as... Heavens open up and Jesus comes flying out on his right white horse with his many crowns. Behind him comes the heavenly retinue. This is probably a combination of angels and the saints in heaven, the the church militant. We are all there in our in, in fine linen. We saw earlier that the bride of Christ, earlier in chapter 19, is clothed in fine linen as opposed to the gaudy, kind of colorful. Uh, seductive uh, garb of the harlot. These robes are white because they've been washed clean in the blood of the Lamb. Now, while we are arrayed like an army, really, we're sort of just spectators. We've come to watch, okay? We don't take part in this battle, okay? Jesus comes, and we're coming with him, and we're just going to sit there and watch. As Jesus conquers everyone here. And now we see in verse 15 how uh, Christ will judge and make war. Look at verse 15. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword. That's an image we've seen before in Revelation as well. That with it he should strike the nations and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron he himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. Another image we've seen before. So the sharp sword that proceeds from his mouth is his word. And we saw that in Revelation 1.16. This is descriptive of the power of the word of God. It is a is sword that cuts. That's what swords do. right? Swords cut. They slice. They stab. They, they, they maim. The word of God comes out. That's what the author of Hebrews also calls the Word of God sharper than a two-edged sword. This is how the Bible is described, so imagine now how it applies to Christ. If this is a sword, if this is a sharp two-edged sword, imagine when Jesus opens His mouth at the end of the age and speaks the literal Word of God coming out to the armies that are arrayed before Him. Christ will use the sword of His mouth to strike the nations, and thus he will break them, he will rule them with a rod of iron. Imagery again drawn from Psalm 2, the great messianic psalm, in which God the Father gives to his Son, his anointed, the nations of the world, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. Now you think of a rod of iron, right? What is? What do you do with a rod? I mean, you Break things with it, right? And if it's iron, that means it's going to be really good at breaking things, right? And what are you going to do with it with your enemies? Well, you're going to, you're going to break them, right? You're going to shatter them. You're going to destroy them in a sense. So after slaying them with the sword of his mouth, he will tread them under, the, under his feet in the winepress of God's wrath. So he slays them, he conquers them, and then they get trampled in the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. Then we see another name on his robe and on his thigh in verse 16. He has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, and that name is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is our King. The one who conquers all the kings. The one who conquers all the lords. The one against whom no one can stand. Such a dramatic, again, I've mentioned this before, but such a dramatic contrast with the image of Christ that we see in the Gospels. And now what we see of Christ in the Gospels, that's Christ. That's Jesus. It's, It's no less a true picture of Jesus than this is a true picture of Jesus. But that Jesus came in humbleness to offer salvation. It was the day of grace. It was the day of God's grace coming to the world through the Son of God, coming into the world to die for the sins of the world. And that's why the writer of Hebrews often exhorts his listeners, his readers, to repent while it is still today. He, he, you know, Hebrews is often thought of as an actual sermon. And, and it's like a sermon that exposits Psalm 95, Psalm 110, and some other psalms. But in Psalm 95, it says, Do not harden your hearts, like as, they, as, the, as the Israelites did in the wilderness, and God slew a bunch of them. Do not harden your hearts, but, but repent while it's still called today. So Jesus comes, it is the day of grace, it is the day of salvation. And even today, it's still the day of salvation. But when he comes at the end of the age, the day of salvation is done. There will be no salvation after this point. Which is why, at the end of Philippians, uh, Paul says, Philippians 2, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. You're either going to do that willingly now, or you will be forced by the rod of iron that Jesus has to do so at the end of the age. And they will do so. Every tongue will confess. Every knee will bow. The, the wicked, the ones who shook their fists at God, will say, you are King of kings. You are Lord of lords. So now Jesus, meek and mild, is gone and his placed Jesus, the conquering King of kings and Lord of lords. And I can think of no better image of Jesus That both inspires hope in his people and fear and dread in his enemies. That Jesus coming on his white horse, that is the hope of all believers. That is the hope of the church to see their glorious king come in glory to judge the world. And that should strike fear and dread in all of the enemies of God. So that's the king's return. Now we see the king's victory. In verses seventeen through 21. So the next thing John sees is an angel standing in the sun, that is the SUN sun, Verse 17 and 18. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, "Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. So now John sees this angel, and he's calling to all the birds of the air, all of the scavenger birds, the vultures, and whatever other birds that come and eat dead carcasses, to invite them to a supper. Now this supper hasn't happened yet, because the armies haven't been defeated yet. But this is a sure thing because the angel saying this is going to happen. Come on and get ready. Put your napkins around your neck and get your silverware ready. And get, hope you come with an appetite because you're going to have a lot of flesh to feast on. And it's not the flesh of animals. It is the flesh of kings, captains, mighty men, and those who sit upon those horses. All the people who stand against God. This is imagery John draws from uh, Ezekiel 39. In Ezekiel 38 and 39, there's this sort of mysterious prophecy against Gog and the land of Magog. And in Ezekiel 39, verses 17 and following, we see the aftermath of that climactic battle between the armies of Gog and of God Almighty. And we see there, and as for you, son of man, thus says the Lord God, speak to every sort of bird and to every beast of the field, assemble yourselves and come, gather together from all sides to my sacrificial meal. You shall eat the flesh of the mighty, drink the blood of the princes of the earth. Again, this is kind of gruesome, right? If you ever watch movies like Braveheart or anything like that, you see these kind of medieval battles and they're kind of going at each other and they're hacking each other to pieces. And and then you see the aftermath and it's just this, this field of what was once green grassland, now littered with corpses. And then you see the birds flying down and picking at the the flesh of the... It sounds gross. That's what the Bible is saying here. That's what's going to happen at this last battle. You're going to have this kind of carrion feast of birds. And here the angel is gathering the birds of the air to prepare for this great feast as Jesus, our warrior king, prepares for battle. And who will be making war with the King of kings and the Lord of lords? Look at verse 19. And I saw the beast. Okay, so that's the same beast we've been seeing throughout. Chapter 13, chapter 11, uh, chapter 17. The beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him, Christ, who sat on the horse and against his army. So here, as we've seen in some of the other visions the kings of the earth are gathered together. They are assembled to finally make final war. As we will see in the millennium at the, in, in chapter 20, um, there's this vision. I haven't fully scoped it out yet, but you see initially that Satan is bound for a thousand years, and at the end, he is, un, he is, he is unleashed. And what does he do? He gathers all the kings of the earth for the final battle, and you know, he, he speaks those deceiving words and allows them to go out in final battle against the king. So, and of course, this beast here uh, calls to mind the visions that we've seen in Daniel uh, in chapter 7. The four beasts rising out of the sea, each one symbolic of kings and kingdoms yet to come. And John sees a vision, of course, in chapter 13, which is essentially a combination of Daniel's four beasts... And again, as we've been saying, this beast is symbolic of all evil world governments, all evil world kingdoms that oppose God and his people and exalt themselves above God. So they're lined up, right? You've got the rider and the right horse with his, with his army. You've got the armies of the assembled kings of the earth with the beast and the false prophet. Now, if I were a Hollywood director and I were making a movie, I would probably have about 45 minutes of extended you know, uh, epic battle scenes, right? You know, the armies clashing and swords, you know, smashing against one another and great, you know, cavalry charges and artillery and all this kind of stuff. Unfortunately, Revelation doesn't write itself like an epic battle movie. What happens in verses 20 and 21? Then the beast was captured. <laughs> so, so the beast assembles all the armies of the world against the, the, the rider on the white horse And then he's captured. He is captured and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast into the lake of fire burning with brimstone and the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And then finally now the birds who were called to feast are now feasting and they were filled with their flesh, or some translations may say gorged with their flesh. Okay, so where you would expect a big epic battle, there is none. Because you're fighting against God, right? I mean, essentially, Psalm 2 says, again, the nations rage, and what does God do on His holy hill of Zion? He laughs in derision. Oh, you silly mortals, what do you expect to do? So this battle, the beast and the false prophet... Again, the false prophet from Revelation 13, he's the second beast that promotes the first beast. They are captured, and they are cast into the lake of fire. And as we will see later on, everyone else who is not found worthy, whose names are not written in the book of life, they too are cast in the lake of fire. And just like Jesus says in many of his parables, it's outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's Gehenna where the the worm does not die and the fire does not go out. It is everlasting punishment. The kings of the earth and their armies are killed. Jesus speaks a word. The sword slays them all in an instant. And then the birds come and they they make feast. This massive final battle turns into the most one-sided victory in the history of the world. Again, very reminiscent of Psalm 2, as I mentioned before. And of course, the Psalm 2 ends with a warning in verse 12. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. The warning at the end of Psalm 2. If you decide to rage against the king on his holy hill in Zion, then you better, you better be prepared. And if, you, if you're smart, you will kiss the son now before he gets angry. And just like that, the final battle ends, not with a bang, but with a whimper, as our conquering warrior king slays all of his enemies with the powerful sword of his word. This is the coming of our Messiah king. This is the returning on the clouds of glory of Jesus, just as he ascended into heaven 2,000 years ago. Now you may be thinking, well, how does this help me in the day to day of my life? Okay, this sounds all good and wonderful but how does it get me through Monday through Saturday? This vision seems to be just as distant as all the other visions we've seen in the Bible. Why should we believe this? And that's a fair question because Christians have been preaching about and looking forward to the return of Christ for 2,000 years. And skeptics have ridiculed us. Oh, your Jesus isn't coming. You've been talking about this for so long. Where is his coming? Peter Saw that. It wasn't even 2,000 years. It was just a few, perhaps two or three decades since Jesus left. And Peter says that, you know, where is the return of your Lord? And that's when Peter says, well, God's timing is not our timing. And you've got to be okay with that. I'm okay with that. But here's what I can tell you. It's a fair question. Should we believe this vision? Well, as a minister of the Word of God, as such, I believe... The word of God to be infallible, to be inerrant, to be the perfect word of God, just like its divine author is infallible, inerrant, and perfect. So when I say to you, Christ will return to conquer his and our enemies, don't take my word for it, because I'm not the one telling you that. I'm just telling you what the word of God says. The word of God, which is perfect and pure, which is unbroken, which is forever, right? The grass of the field, the flower fades. The word of the, gods, the word of our Lord stands forever. Take God's word for it. If the word of God says Jesus will return, bank on it. Bet your house on it. Don't, don't, don't hesitate on that. Either we believe this, or we don't. That's all I can tell you. We either believe this to be true, or we don't believe it to be true. Now I can give you many, many, many good reasons to believe it to be so, but, utter, but ultimately it is the Holy Spirit who will guide us into all truth. It is the Holy Spirit who, who takes the word that he has inspired and illuminates it to our dark hearts so that we believe it. Jesus Christ, the very Son of God, promised that he would return, and that his return will also be to settle all scores to right all wrongs and to make all things new as we will see in you know some time when we see the new heavens and the new earth coming. Now I know it seems like a long time since those promises were made, but again, God's timing is not our timing. Think of Father Abraham, right? Good old Father Abraham back in the Old Testament. Abraham believed God in what? It was counted to him as righteousness. right? God told him, get up. Leave your home and go to a place I'm going to show you. And Abraham said, are you kidding? I don't know where I'm going. No, that's not what he said, right? He didn't say anything. Abraham just got up and went. He went and then God told him, go up on this mountain and look. As far as your eye can see in all directions, I will give you this land. And Abraham believed God. Now did Abraham possess the land? No, except for the the plot that he bought to to bury his wife. That was the only piece of land that he actually owned of the promised land. But God's promises are never broken, right? God will fulfill his promises. So Abraham had faith, as the writer of Hebrews says, although he never saw the fulfillment of all the things that God promised to him. Think of all the saints in Jesus Christ who have died in faith since Christ has ascended. They too never saw the final fulfillment of the return of Christ, the promises of Christ. Yet they held their faith. Martyrs were burned at the stake, drawn and quartered, fed to the lions. But they died in faith. I believe it was Polycarp. I think that's the guy's name. The one who was like 80-something years old. And he was um, put on trial. He was in the arena about to be killed and he was called to recant. He says, reject your God. And of course being kind of snarky, he says, okay, I reject all your gods. <laughs> all your Roman gods. I reject your gods. And he was told to recant one more time. He says, I have for over 80 years of my life served God. I'm not going to recant on him now. And he was burned at the stake for it. He, he, he did not see the final fulfillment of all these promises, but he believed he had faith. Faith is necessary, right? That's why Paul says we walk not by sight. If I walked by sight, I would be very despondent. (laughs) I would be very depressed if everything I did was based on what I could see, hear, feel, touch, or smell. I think I said feel and touch. That's okay. Faith is necessary. Faith is necessary. It is, as again, as the writer of Hebrews says, it is the substance of things hoped for. So faith is stuff. It is substance. My faith provides the proof of the things hoped for. It is my evidence of things not seen. And faith can be hard. It can be hard to be faithful when the culture around us doesn't care or laughs or worse, persecutes us for our faith. We don't see it so much in this country. It's coming. It's coming but we're not seeing it like we see it in other countries where people are actually literally killed for their faith. It can be hard when wicked people seem to be profiting at our expense. It can be hard when you feel like Job and it seems as if God is out to get you. And that's when faith gets real, as I mentioned this morning. Faith has to be real. A real faith is one that comes in the times of these trials. That's when faith latches on to the object of our faith and never lets go. Right? You're holding on to Jesus. You're holding on to the the promises in God's Word. Think of Jacob when he wrestled with God in the wilderness, right? He's wrestling with God and he won't let go. And, you know, God says, Let me go. And and he says, I won't let go until you bless me, God. And and, and God blessed him. Or just like Moses, who who led a, a Stiff-necked people for forty years through the wilderness, who was, beat, you know, berated and, and 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 insulted and 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 oftentimes rejected by the people, yet he wouldn't stop until God showed him His glory. Think about the time when Moses calls out to God; he says, "Show me Your glory," and God shows him a part of His glory, right? Or think of the in Jesus' case, the Syrophoenician woman, who like or blind Bartimaeus, if you will who would not stop until Jesus gave them what they wanted, right? Syrophoenician woman says, bless me, Lord. And Jesus says, I cannot give the, 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 the food of the kids to the, to, the, to the dog. And the woman says, hey, look, even the dog gets the scraps that fall off from the table, right? And, and Jesus says, what a wonderful faith. Or by Bartimaeus, who cried out to Jesus, heal me, O Lord, heal me. Weak or strong, small or great, our faith is only as good as that in which our faith is placed in. Right, A mustard-seed-sized mustard faith in Christ, as Jesus says, can move mountains. A tiny little seed of faith can move mountains. And we are called to remain faithful. We are called to remain faithful until Christ returns, and he will return. Maybe not in our lifetime, maybe not in the lifetime of our children or grandchildren, but he will return. That is the promise. That's what we see here in this vision. And we must remain faithful. Because there are many lures in the world that want to steer us away from our faith, away from our course in this world, and off into things that are ungodly and and try to get us to love the world, the flesh, and the devil, to love the things of this world. But all these things are going to pass, right? If we put our hope and faith in the things of this world, then they're going to pass. They're going to burn up, and we will burn up with them. So until then, let us... Hold fast to the hope that is found here in Christ. Because he is a sure and steadfast anchor for our souls. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, what a wonderful promise here that we see in this vision of the return of Christ. And though it may seem like a long time, Lord, we know that even now, this is as sure as it was when it was written. We know that Jesus is returning. Help us, Lord, to be faithful and to be steadfast, to be immovable and always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord our work will never be in vain. I pray for these dear ones here, Lord, that they will hold steadfast to their faith, that you will continue to sustain them through the trials of life, and that you will bring them home when Christ returns. Whether we die before he returns or whether we are transformed in the twinkling of an eye, Lord, we, all we do is long and desire for our King to return and to make all things new. When he does, he will wipe every tear from our eyes and he will, he will bring us and usher us in to the new heavens and the new earth. And then we will enjoy the blessed presence of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as all those times, all those things in the Psalms that we saw earlier where we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever, where a thousand days in your court, where one day in your court is better than a thousand elsewhere, and where we long to be in the tabernacle of the Lord. Lord, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.